how are you? Yes, I know. You're always good. You're always fine. Everybody's fine. Now, if you're sitting outside and chatting with me, and I say, how are you? And you were going to choose something you would focus on to tell me about your life. What area of your life would you choose to tell me something about? Maybe would you would choose a relational area. Maybe you'd say, ah, oh, you know, my husband and I, and say something about that. Or my kids and the start of school. Or, you know, this weekend, so fun, went with some friends. Tell me about that. Would you choose to focus on an area of relationship? Or maybe you would choose to focus on your work or something about your career. Maybe you'd tell me, hey, this has been a huge success happening, and I'm excited to tell you. Or, oh, here's the challenge, and boy, it's really got me, but I have hope. And share something about your work. Or maybe you would share something about your body, like something, a health thing you're going through, or some big like race that you're training for and how that's going. Or maybe you'd share something, you know, and focus in on your emotional landscape. And tell me, you know, you know, I'm feeling at peace right now, even though there's this tumultuous stuff going on. Or maybe you'd tell me about your spiritual life and say, ah, yes, you know, even though there's this tumultuous stuff going on, I'm feeling this peace of God, and this is what that means. And share something specific from your spiritual life. Well, as you can see, we have a lot going on in our lives. There's a lot of parts and pieces that make us who we are. And as humans, we are these multifaceted, complex, dynamic beings, right? We have a lot going on. So as we're taking this vital signs series, we want to take some vital signs, but I want to focus our vital sign taking on the whole rather than just one area. And instead of just isolating these things, looking at the whole of who we are, the interconnectedness of who we are, and how the spiritual undercurrent flows through each of these areas, kind of ask the question, how are those things doing as a whole? So this morning, the map, where we're going, we're going to talk about two atoms, we're going to talk about cookie dough, we're going to talk about sponges. So there you go. Let's start with two atoms. You know, we've known from the beginning that... We are complex, multifaceted, dynamic people because God made us in his image. God is complex, and when he made us, he decided to make us complex. And so we see that from the very beginning of the scriptures. When we get the creation story, it begins in this way. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the first line, the first page of the Bible. And then the story unfolds. And we hear God in kind of day fashion speaking into existence these things, saying, ah, let there be light. Boom, there's light. Let there be sky. Let there be land. Let there be fish in the water. Let there be birds in the air. Let there be living things on the land. Rest. You know, very orderly, structured. God is moving through creation. Decisive. Producing. Making things happen. So, God creates people, and he creates us unique. And here's what it says about God's unique creation of us, and then his instructions to us. It says, chapter 1, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. 
rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So maybe like this chapter one, we're getting this God who's producing, creating, six days, boom, boom, it's done, it's here. We also get the instructions, create, produce, rule, subdue. It's chapter one, right? Maybe you've read this story because all of a sudden, the story takes this weird turn. You ever notice this weird turn? Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 just suddenly turns, and it's as if chapter 1 doesn't exist, and we just start over with the story. Here's how chapter 2, verse 4 switches gears. It says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth, as if chapter 1 wasn't ahead of it. When they were created, and when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, no plant had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there is no one to work the ground. Very different language in this restart, this second start to the story. It's as if chapter 1 isn't there, and now we're moving into a different direction and telling a different story. Same kind of story, but different language. Well, if you can imagine, everybody has asked, why? Why are there two starts to the story? Why is this? You know, I can imagine back in oral history tradition when they're just orally telling this story. Kids asking their parents, Mom and Dad, what is the deal? The story starts, and then it just starts again. What's the deal? Well, some people have wondered if the story was written by two different people. And those two people wrote such good starts to the story that they just had to include both of them. Right? That's possible. But other people speculate that there is something in how each of the stories are told that is important. And they're so important that they have to tell them in this different way. Maybe you have read recently um, David Book's new book, The Road to Character. And in it, um, Brooks is drawing from Joseph Solvichik's essay in 1965, Um, The Lonely Man of Faith. So here's David Brooks writing this book using this essay, which is talking about this two starts to the story of Genesis. And Solvichik says that um, the two parts, the two starts, are representing the two parts of our humanity. And he says that there's Adam 1 and there's Adam 2. And Adam 1, he says, is given creative faculties in order to master his environment as God instructs him to. And we just see that description, right? We just read Genesis chapter 1 that we are told to be fruitful, to increase, to fill the earth, to subdue, to rule over. And we're getting that kind of language in Adam 1. But then we transition to Adam 2, which is a different kind of aspect of our nature. And here's what he says. He says, This Adam, too, is distinctly different. He's a contractual man who surrenders himself to the will of God. So we're being presented these two parts of humanity, two parts of who we are. And in this second one, the second chapter, we even see that the language is very different. It's more relational. So here, again, we're going to see in chapter 2 what um, the language looks like. So, now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the East Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. 
And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What a shift, different language, describing the same sort of thing of creation and how things started, but it's very personal in this second description. You know, we get this very personal God who's planting the trees. We get this emotional language of describing the trees as pleasing and good for food. It's not the let it be, let it be, let it be, but it's more relational and emotional. You know, the language also changes for the instructions that God gives, the mandate that God gives to the people. You know, in chapter 1, we saw that it was rule and subdue. And here, we have a little bit different language of, hey, go till the garden, take care of it. Here's what it says. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So again, you're hearing this relational language, these layers on the same instruction, but it's not, you know, subdue and rule, but it's work the garden, take care of it. And here we're, in this section, we're also getting this relational contract. It's, it's between God and the people saying, hey, this tree over here, don't eat that. You know, that's our agreement between you and me. And then we get this other relational component of it's not good for man to be alone. You know, speaking not about just the facts of the matter of getting things done, but there's something about the person that's involved here. So these two starts to the creation story, according to Solvichik, are presenting the two parts of humanity. And that's what David Brooks picks up on in his book, The Road to Character. And he takes it one step further and he says, you know, Adam 1 is about resume virtues. And Adam 2 is about eulogy virtues. So you think about a resume virtue in Adam 1. It's about being career-oriented, ambitious. It's the side of our nature that wants high status, wants to be, win victories and succeed in the world. You know, these resume virtues are about moving out into the world and taking action. But then you have this Adam 2 side where you have the eulogy virtues. You think about a eulogy, you know, it's the end of a person's life, what you say about them at their funeral. You know, the things, not about maybe all their things they did and accomplished, but now you're speaking about their person, their character. You know, what kind of person were they? How did they relate to people around them? And those are the kind of stories you often tell at a eulogy. So, Sovichik says that, or David Brooks says, that the eulogy virtues are wanting, to, are wanting to have this serene inner character, a quiet but solid sense of right and wrong, and not only to do good, but to be good. See this difference being pointed out? Resume virtue about your drive in life to get things done, and eulogy virtue about your character, who you are, your person. And these two starts of the Genesis story are just pulling that detail out, saying, hey, we are complicated people. We have at least these two parts. 
the resume part and the eulogy part. Both are super important because there is a season of life when you need to be building your resume, pushing out into the world, taking the ground. But there's also an important place for the eulogy virtues that you need to be living out character and developing relationships and pushing into the world that way. So in his book, David Brooks is saying, hey, resume building gets all the attention and we need to pay attention to the eulogy virtues. So he's kind of waving the flag for character, and that's good. And as Bill Gates, maybe you've heard of him, founder of Microsoft, um, he read this book at around his 60th birthday, and he said, in reading this book, he's like, yes, I appreciate this distinction of resume building and then also eulogy virtues. You know, that you have life and character. And probably at that time and season of his life, he's asking the question, you know, what is my mark I'm making on the world? So he's appreciating the book, but he also has this pondering. Here's what Bill Gates wrote. He says, I like the way Brooks fleshes out the Adam 1 and Adam 2 sides of human nature. But it's not always clear where one starts and the other stops. For example, you could argue that my work with Microsoft was a classic case of Adam 1 resume building. But I also found deep satisfaction in that work not because I achieved material success beyond my wildest expectations, but because I got to help build a great team and be a part of a new industry that unleashed the potential of people all around the world. And that's the thing, isn't it? That we have both eulogy and resume in us, intertwined, interconnected. It's not like you can just separate them out and focus on them individually, but we are both. We don't know where one begins and the other stops. We need both, and we need to live out both. So as we begin this series on vital signs, I think it's important that we begin by acknowledging that, yes, we are made up of these parts of our lives. You know, the resume part, the eulogy part, the character. You know, the fact that we have bodies, our emotional part, our relational part, our work part. You know, all these parts make us who we are. So it's important to acknowledge those parts, but it's maybe even more important to see ourselves as a whole, that we are complete, a unit. We are one. So when you go to the doctor, Dr. Bill is here for service. Handy. He could have taken my temperature. But when you go to the doctor, what do they do? Check your vital signs. And what are they? Your heart rate, your blood pressure, your temperature, your respiratory function. I'm not sure how you test your respiratory function, but you can test that. So these are the things that you're testing for your body. And when you take your vital signs, that's seeing if you're in the right range, right? If you have numbers that are above the right range, that's bad. If you have numbers that are below, that's equally bad. You want to be in the range. And these vital signs are signals of something in your body happening. So it's pretty easy to take your body vital signs. The next step of figuring out why something is going wrong is much more complicated. So you think about, you know, why is my heart rate so fast? Well, is it something about my heart itself? Or is it my work that's causing me stress, making my heart race? You know, it's more complicated to figure out what is going wrong 
But to take the vital signs is pretty straightforward. So as we think about the vital signs and just this baseline of vital signs for us, the beginning question I have for us is, are you interconnected and whole? Or are you compartmentalized and separate? You know, taking that kind of vital sign, are you interconnected in your life, all the parts are together and interacting? Or are you compartmentalized, treating each area like a silo, separate? Well, now we turn to cookies and sponges. So, you think about cookie dough. You know, I have the ingredients for making cookies right here. You know, milk and sugar, chocolate chips, butter, eggs, vanilla, all that stuff. But what is the difference between the ingredients and a cookie? What's the difference? Chemistry, I know. <laughs> Chemical reactions. When you put that group of ingredients together, put it in the oven, chemical reactions happen to transform that group of things into something completely different, a cookie. Well, just for fun and because it's Labor Day weekend, I want to watch a video of cookies baking. Let's take a look. Look at that. The butter is starting to melt. Ah. Look at the chemist, chemical reactions happening inside there, mixing. Soon gases are formed. The water is going to steam out and make little pockets of flaky cookie. Caramelization happens at like 356 degrees. They're in the parlor. Help yourself. Isn't that fun? Thinking about a cookie, right? There's obviously a difference between this group of ingredients and a cookie. Now, you take my six-year-old son, Russell, and you bring him in here and say, hey, Russell, I want you to taste each of these ingredients and then tell me which ingredients do you want to put in your cookie dough. What's Russell going to say? You know, he's going to taste the flour, and he's going to be like, ah, we don't need that. That doesn't taste good. And then eggs, raw eggs, he's probably not even going to taste. So he's going to not have eggs. Um, vanilla, baking soda, that's going to be, he's going to spit that out. So he's not going to want that in his cookie dough. You know, Russell's cookie dough is going to be made up of milk, sugar, butter, chocolate chips. You know, that's what he's going to want to make it out of, right? Leave out all those bad tasting things. But as you know, that doesn't result in a cookie. You need this group of ingredients and then heat added when they're mixed together and heat added to create a cookie. It's all the ingredients that becomes the one whole cookie. And you may be wondering, why are we talking about chocolate chip cookies? But I simply want to affirm this morning that you, in your life as a whole, you are a chocolate chip cookie. You are whole and complete. Yes, you have parts that make up your life. There's aspects about you and the ingredients that make you you. But also, you are more than just those individual ingredients. You are something more. And in fact, the most important thing about you is that God created you. God created you and he cares for you. Just like those cookies baking, he baked you in your mother's tummy long ago. Or just recently. Well, 
in thinking about this, I want to turn our attention to Psalm 139, a poem that expresses God's intimate care for us in every part and piece of our life. So Psalm 139 is written on the program and the notes if you want to look there. It'll also be on the screens. But this, I'm reading this because I need to remind myself of this passage and this idea this week. And I hope it encourages you as well. The psalmist writes, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. You know, before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You know, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. What a beautiful expression of God's intimate attention to us, to our being created, and to our life in every detail of every day. You know, two absolutely beautiful truths expressed in this poem. You know, one is that God, the God of the heavens and the earth, created you. What beautiful language that God knit you together in your mother's womb. You know, I just imagined that happening a couple years ago for me when I was a little tiny embryo. God saying, ah, I'm going to make this guy an extrovert. But you know what? I'm going to make him a listening extrovert, not too talkative. And then God's saying, you know, this guy, I'm going to make him, you know, really see the big picture. You know, he's going to have to go see a doctor to get a prescription to see details because that's just not going to be where he's at. But he's going to see the big picture. And it's amazing to think how God was involved with creating each one of us. And now that we're here living our lives, the second beautiful truth is that God knows every detail about you. You know, maybe the most seemingly inconsequential, when you sit down or when you stand up, God knows about it and cares. You know, and there's that great section in the middle, verse 7 through 11, describing the inescapability of God. You know, when he says, where can I go? You know, if I go here, if I go there, you are there. You know, wherever the psalmist goes, God is there and has been there. You know, God's knowledge of us is inseparably entwined with his involvement with us. 
He knows and he cares. So, you are a cookie. You are whole. You are complete. God knows all the ingredients. He baked you at the right temperature. But, for some reason, just in our lives, I don't know, the way our culture is structured, we tend to lean toward this compartmentalized thinking. Thinking of ourselves just in these parts, in these pieces. Maybe it's our resume virtue, like trying to impose itself on our lives that everything is structured and orderly. But also it might just simply be the structure of our lives. You know, just think about your life and where everything happens in your week. You know, you could just imagine somebody lives over here in Wash Park. That's where their house is and they live. But then every day they drive downtown to a big building and they work there and see a different group of people there. And then recently several of their friends moved to Lakewood where they could have a bigger backyard. And so you're often traveling over to Lakewood to see your friends. And then you come here to Platte Park to church. You, know, you have all these neighborhoods that are just part of your lives that are just kind of here and there and they're not intersecting and crossing over. I mean, when is the last time I saw any of you at the grocery store? Like, never do I see anybody at the grocery store. Because our lives just are not interconnecting with each other in our different sectors of life. And so we can tend to think that life is compartmentalized. Our lives are like silos. You know, I do my work here, I have my friends here, I have church here. But even though the structure of our lives geography and neighborhoods of our lives tends toward that compartmentalization, I want to affirm this morning that your life is a whole, that your life is more like a sponge than a silo. So you think about a sponge, what does a sponge do? You know, got a sponge, stick it in water, what happens? The side that's on the water in the puddle, right, is going to start sucking up the water. And soon that water will suck up all throughout the whole sponge. It'll just infiltrate the whole sponge, right? Just what happens to a sponge. You know, what happens if you take some blue dye and put it over here in this corner of the sponge? That blue dye is going to seep all throughout the whole sponge, right? That's what sponges do. And that's the way our lives are as well. You think about your life is this one whole thing. It's not just a bunch of parts put together. So I don't want to take it down the image of, you know, your life is just a bunch of parts like sponges stacked. Or your life is like a bunch of sponges all tied together. Your life is like one sponge, a whole, complete. You can't just like pull out one area of your life. Now, it may be helpful to think about the parts in your life. So I wrote different parts of my life on this sponge. You know, there's spiritual life area, emotional work, relationship, some of my passions. You know, there's role and function parts of my life. You know, like I'm a dad, I'm a brother, I'm an uncle, I'm a son, I'm a friend. You know what I am not? A grandpa. Maybe someday. But you know, all those parts make up who I am and they are all interconnected. So you think about in my life, you know, when there's a work stress going on, it's like putting that blue dye in that area of my sponge. And what happens? That 
blue dye seeps over to every other area. So I come home, walk in my house. What am I doing? I'm bringing that work stress with me. It's not like I check it at the door and I've like compartmentalized off that area. I'm stressed out. I'm bringing it home. Now the kids, I don't have very much margin because I'm stressed out because of work. Now I'm stressed out because of them. And it just expands. The blue dye goes everywhere. But you, know, you think about your friend who has just been diagnosed with this just crazy health crisis thing. It's like putting blue dye in your relationship world. What happens? That blue dye just seeps all over. So in your body, how do you feel it? Just like a big knot? You're not hungry because you're just worried about them? So your body is reacting to that. What happens when you go to work? It's hard to be focused because you're worried about your friend. You're thinking about your friend. This thing that you're doing doesn't seem as important as the life of your friend. You even try to go and do a hobby. <laughs> you're like, okay, my friend's over here, but I'm going to go do my fun thing. But you can't even do your fun thing because you're worried about your friend. It's seeping across all areas. So our lives are a whole, like one sponge. So as we begin Vital Signs, I want to affirm that we are multifaceted, complex, dynamic people. There's a lot of parts that make up our lives, but we are a whole. And God made us complex, and God knows that we are complex, and he wants to us to live these complex lives and to work it all out with him, knowing that he created us. He assembled us, and he's caring about every detail of our lives as we go through it. You know, Jesus often was talking about water and water imagery. Since we're talking about sponges, it seems pretty important just to think about how in life you get stuff sucked up. You know, life is just getting in your sponge, and Jesus might need to come along and let some of that stuff out, get some of the blue dye out, in order for him then to wash through us once again, to fill us. Maybe that's a cleansing of forgiveness. But maybe that's just a filling where you're empty, a filling with joy or hope. You know, working some of those eulogy character virtues into us that our lives are filled with Christ and who he is, and who he wants us to be in our lives in this world. Well, in conclusion, I just want to read this quick passage that's the end of Paul's letter to the Thessalonian church. It has a great language for this. When Paul writes, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The truth. us as unique people 